Everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, Last Nighters, and the Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out, thelaunchpadmedia.com. We are doing Straight Outta Compton tonight on the 89th episode of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 89. This is going to be a fun episode. We have a returning guest. He is the Afro-Libertarian, and we will introduce him in just a moment. Um, if you like what we do here, do check us out on Patreon at lastnighter.com slash Patreon. Throw a couple of shekels our way. You can get some pre-show, post-show bonus content. We also, at the upper levels, have live stream access where you can actually see us making this sausage live. Uh, and you can even interact with us a little bit in the comments. And uh, we might even, I don't know, give you a shout out or two here or there. Like uh, the Anarchist Mom is one of our Patreon supporters. So there you go, Anarchist Mom. Another shout out for you. Um, so another thing you can do is subscribe on hmm. the old iTunes and give us a rating or review, and then we post those reviews on our page, and uh, it gets other people interested in what we're doing. And so, the more earballs we can get, the more we can get uh, our little. Um, what would you call this, Robert? Like we 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 wrap the pill of libertarianism and Austrian economics in a little bit of a sugar coated kind of easy to swallow form, right? We make it non confrontational. We're talking about a a movie which everybody can relate to on some level and then we sneak in our libertarian propaganda here and there so yeah I, I think we i mean sometimes we're more overt about it than other times but i think even if you're uh completely new to these ideas you can get something out of the show and you might be a little bit um have your interest peaked by something we might say i hope that uh we are somewhat effective i know that we have at least turned one person away from the altar of statism. So and that's, and that's a win, baby. That's a win. That's a win in our book. And speaking of winners, we have Ryan Jones, the Afro-Libertarian, joining us. You have been a guest with us in the past on previous iterations of our show. We talked about Selma, Watchmen, and Logan with you. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us for this one tonight. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and uh, you know, throw any links or Twitter handles out there, and then we'll get into the movie. No, man, it's good to be back. Uh, really enjoyed being on with you guys the last few times. Uh, so it's been it's been a while, been a, about two years, maybe. Uh, I don't have any, you know, I don't have a official website, a blog or anything like that. Um, just catch me on Twitter at uh, The Afro-Libertarian, on Twitter at The Afro-Libertarian. So, I mean, you know, I'm always tweeting. I don't tweet as much these days, but I try to get a few shots in here and there. So uh, sorry if you heard this noise. That was my phone vibrating. Uh, but yeah, just catch me there. Catch me on Twitter. Or if you join the Tom Woods elite group, I'm in there posting all the time and chatting it up with you guys. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one good. of the that's one of the tamer groups that you and I are in together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have lots of fun. All right. So let's get into how we start this off with the Google description. So Straight Outta Compton came out 2015, though it seemed far more recent to me. Uh, it's labeled as a drama slash crime film, two hour and 47 minutes, 7.9 on that IMDb, 88% Rotten Tomatoes, 72% Metacritic, however, 95% of Google users gave it, a, gave it the thumbs up. The description is, in 1988, a groundbreaking new group revolutionizes music and pop culture, changing and influencing hip-hop forever. NWA's first studio album, Straight Outta Compton, stirs controversy with its brutally honest depiction of life in southern Los Angeles. With guidance from veteran manager Jerry Heller, band members Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, Easy E, DJ Yella, and MC Ren navigate their way through the industry, acquiring fame, fortune, and a place in history. Came out August 14, 2015. Director is F. Gary Gray. He is also the guy who did Friday, among other things. 
Uh, the featured song is straight out of Compton box office at two hundred one point six million dollars. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much the information there. Robert, your reaction? Well, I'm always amused. Sometimes, well, not always. Sometimes I'm amused by the categorization that the people put these movies in. What did you say it was? You said something slash crime, drama slash crime, drama. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd say drama slash like biopic crime. There are a few crimes committed in this film, but I wouldn't say this movie focuses on crime. And this is just the story of this music group. I mean, Easy E starts off. Wait, wait, wait. I thought it was a story of a crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube. No, <laughs> it's it's all of them. It's not just Cube. Easy, Dre, Ren. Like you just said, you already said their names. But I mean, don't don't one, that's right. <laughs> he doesn't get a lot of love, but he's there. Um <laughs> Yeah, E um, starts off as a drug dealer, but what crimes are committed other than maybe Jerry's kind of like embezzling, I guess you could call it, or maybe mismanagement? I don't know, Daniel. Oh, man. I mean, there's there's a load of crime in this movie. Well, okay, what, the false arrest by the cops in Detroit? Is that what you're talking about? Well, there's that. I mean, most of the crime is is with a badge. I'll give you that. But then oh, well, on yeah. a surface level, though, and I kind of want to get into this maybe a little bit later, but they are the, the there's this, um, how do you say this properly? There's a certain stigma attached to South Central LA and the types of people that NWA are. Many are engaged in illicit activities that are technically illegal, though wouldn't be in a you know fully free libertarian society, but they are quote unquote crimes in today's world or in 1989 88 whenever this uh action took place and so they are committing illegal acts and people who are similar to them are committing many illegal acts and so there i mean there's a lot of crime in that respect right so it's like well not criminal not real crime but you know service level crime yeah well okay so there's the opening where the crenshaw mafia guy threatens the kid in the bus and then there's the LAPD just randomly harassing people and assaulting them. But I wouldn't call it like a crime movie. All right. All right. Yeah. You know if, we're, if we're nitpicking like, genres. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a casino or a Godfather, you know, mafia type movie. Yeah. When I think of like a crime movie, I think of kind of a cop show where you see the, you know, the criminals and you have the cops trying to get them. You know, that's not this, you know. Yeah. No, this is just the story of NWA in the late 80s and the 90s. And their life and times. I, I don't know. It was. I thought it was really good. I enjoyed it. I, I'm glad that it's, you know, Dre and Cube, you know, had a big part in the making of the movie. I mean, I'm sure he had all kinds of input. So I'm, 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 I'm guessing that the, the story is fairly accurate. And it was a fascinating, if, if, if a bit long movie. Yeah, you know, I, I, I got to say, I found the movie to be a little bit incoherent in some ways. Like, I wasn't sure really what the story was I get it that it's a biopic or what uh, Doc Brown would call a biopic, which I thought was weird. He was our, our guest for Back to the Future last week. So it's it's more like just chronicling the events on a timeline. Uh, you know, this happened and then this happened and this happened. And there's some impact and it relates to the, you know, the, the thing that happened before. But I really felt like this could have branched out into sort of a here's a movie that's like the origins. And then they get into some of the other stuff like I don't know, maybe in like a, a TV series or something that would have been pretty interesting. Like, yeah, you, know, you do. You do kind of wish it would have been like an HBO or maybe a Netflix series because it's such it's it's such a uh, like a small percentage of 
their whole story as far as Dr. Dre, Ice Cube. You know, I mean, they pretty much saw the end of Easy there, but you know, it was such it led to such a bigger story. But I mean, overall, you know, you, you kind of look at it and you feel like you know it captured that little glimpse, that little snapshot in time, which was kind of a uh, you know a very uh, I guess an important time for that genre for hip hop uh, for you know that urban kind of music for you know the, for the world starting to get a view of the West Coast and that gang culture which wasn't really prevalent in the United States, you know, around the United States, it started getting prevalent, you know, towards the late eighties and the nineties. And it kind of, you know, it kind of uh, industrialized and glamorized and commercialized that whole, you know, blood, crip, you know, West coast gangster uh, culture, which really didn't exist across the United States. That was purely a West coast Los Angeles thing, you know, and it kind of exported that whole image out to not just you know not just the you know United States but the world really you know yeah I wasn't um in on Gin and Juice the music video wasn't Snoop wearing like a blue bandana I want to say he kind of yeah. had that yeah yeah he was a he was from the Crip the area he was from was a Crip dominated area you know but he wasn't like a gangster he wasn't a Crip like a member but it I mean when you lived out there you you pretty much you were a part of it or you weren't you know so if you grew up somewhere. You either had to rep it or you didn't. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Yeah. It, yeah. Back to the point I was I was uh, trying to suss out. Like I was hoping that the movie would focus more on like one main conflict or two. You know, kind of like story arcs. Because like when the government yeah. kind of comes after them, I was hoping like, oh great, you know, this is going to be awesome. You know, like let's see how they give an f you to the to the government and continue. You know, fight the free speech thing. But it's like a 10 minute snippet of a two and a half hour movie. Well, yeah, yeah I could see that. Um, I mean, where you were wanting, so you were wanting more of a focused story. So like we watched, um, what was it? Molly's game the other week. Mm -hmm. And you had like a similar problem with it. Like you were like, why am I watching this? What was the point of this? There's not some main theme that's driven home or some kind of, like satisfying conclusion, right? It's just like, and life goes on and Dre starts aftermath and he goes on to make more great music and right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I appreciate like the insight into their lives as, as much as they're able to capture that and present it. I mean, I'm, I'm a suburban, you know, white guy who grew up listening to this music on my paper route and actually got in trouble for it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I was a fan, right? Uh, and so it's, it's, it's fun to like learn more about like where they came from and, and how they interacted and how they blew up and became famous and how their manager was like screwing them. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you see all these little snippets and, and whatnot, but it's, it's almost like a, a, a documentary style biography thing where you're like, well, if you're interested in this, in these people, then watch this and learn more about them. But yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with you that it is a movie that tries to do a lot. It's a three hour movie, but it's still compressing a decade into three hours, which is of course impossible. You're picking and choosing things. But I would, for me, the central conflict of the movie was Easy E. It's kind of like the Easy E story. And like this whole movie was kind of like their homage to their friend Easy. And it was his kind of, their their relationship with him, you know, and how it broke down with the, uh, the issues with Jerry and the disagreements over the contracts and the money. And then them coming back together at the end, but then the tragedy of him dying right as they're about to maybe do another NWA project. It's kind of like a, I thought, I thought that was a pretty satisfying ending for me. Yeah. And it was also, I mean, it, these biopics, 
biopics <laughs> kind of take the uh, the kind of same approach where you know you see the humble beginnings, you see the uh, the rise, you know, you see the uh, influence of external pressure, you see the uh, how money and fame and um, you know those things kind of get between you know natural friendships friendships that develop. Then you see the eventual downfall. So, I mean, if you look pretty much every uh, movie like that kind of follows that format. And that's all this was. I mean, yeah, it was I, like you said, I think Easy e was that common theme in the whole movie. That was the character where it kind of built around, which was which I thought was interesting since he was the one that that's no longer here. You know, so, yeah, I think it, I think that was the common theme. But you're right. There, there isn't one message to take away from the movie or anything like that. It, that wasn't, I don't think that was even, even the purpose of the movie. It was just, Hey, you know, this is what happened, you know, for better or for worse, here it is, you know, and let's move on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder what other people would think about it. I mean, here we're listening to three guys that kind of grew up listening to these, this music were fans of this music. So a lot of this movie was really nostalgic for me. Like, right. You know, when Snoop comes in, I'm like, yeah, you know, I right. mean, it, you know, Eminem even gets a brief, you know, thing in the post credits, but or in the credits. But I wonder if you had no, you know, if you just landed here from Mars, if you thought this would be a good movie, because the whole yeah, time know. I'm just learning about these guys that I was fans of back in the day and just just really interested in their life. Because, you know, even to see them react to the Rodney King thing, because I remember being watching the Rodney King thing and reacting in the way I did. But to see that it affected them a lot and how, you know, just to see, that whole thing was really, I don't know if you want to call it cathartic or like emotionally connecting for me and them. But that that really was a human thing that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, you bring a lot of foreknowledge to it being fans. And so you kind of already know some of the basics. So I think someone who has no idea who these guys are watches this. I don't think they think it's a great movie. I think this Maybe. is like kind of for fans. Or, or for people who are somewhat familiar with them, which is fine. I mean, I, I love movies that are for fans. That's great. You know, like uh, yeah, I don't know. Blade Runner for, uh, 2049. That's like a for fans movie. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for for example, my wife, she's younger than me. Uh, so she didn't really listen to a lot of this music. I mean, she's a fan of you know, like hip hop and she knows Ice Cube and Snoop and all those guys. But she never was a real like, you know, fan. And you know, the movie kind of made her a fan. She made her want to go back and listen and, you know, made her want to, you know, investigate a little more into what they were talking about, you know, so it did, it kind of sold her on some of that stuff, even without her being a fan of it or knowing much about it. Cause she grew up, because she grew up more in the, you know, late nineties, two thousands. So, so I don't know. I mean, maybe if you, if you're completely separated from like, you know, the uh, hip hop and, you know, pop culture here in the United States and you watched it, yeah, I don't know if you would like it. You know, I, I really don't know. It's one of those, you know, unseen things. I don't know how you would feel about it. If, But I know I've seen like bio, uh, biopics of like uh, the Motown era, like the Temptations or stuff like that. You know, eras that I didn't grow up in, but I'd see it. And, you know, it, it made me way more interested in that whole era. So I wonder if, you know, some people would kind of take that view. And I don't think when they created the movie, they intended it to reach out to people that didn't know any, anything about it. I think they were kind of intended to, you know, dip into that nostalgia that people carried. And, you know, and we saw that with a lot of the lines and the music they played and stuff like that. They wanted to kind of, you know, pull on those nostalgic strings to get people 
you know, into the movies and it worked. I mean, it made, it made a ton of money. Yeah. One more thing from me about why I'm glad this as a fan, you know, why I'm glad this movie exists. I remember liking the music and I was a big, I had the chronic, I had doggy style. I didn't have straight out of Compton, but I knew a lot of songs like fuck the police, that sort of thing. But I didn't listen to, or I didn't read into their lives. I, I don't know how well, you know, their lives were doc, how well their lives are documented. I mean, I'm sure they were in Rolling Stone, maybe, and I, I remember having a subscription to that for a year or two, but I don't remember reading a whole lot of stories about it. Um, they were probably on other, you know, hip hop magazines and that sorts of things. But I didn't know the stories behind why they broke up. I didn't know why there wasn't another NWA album. I didn't, and I didn't know why, you know, Dre and you know, I didn't, I didn't know those stories. So as a fan, I'm just like, oh, okay, now this is coming out, and I'm going to listen to this, and this is great music, great. But I didn't, you know. This is really illuminating as to why my history, my past, is what it is. Yeah, so, yeah. Is it fun? Fun to learn. And now you know why Cube made you know "Fuck the Police" and "No Vaseline," two great songs. <laughs> yeah, why? Why Cube left? I didn't know why Cube went to. Um, who? Where did he go to? In New York, I forget. What was the? What was the? Priority uh, Records. No, but it was the other one. He went to Priority. Oh, but, Lynch, uh, Lynch Mob. Lynch Mob. Yeah, when he when he, yeah. he released he released like two albums for Lynch Mob, and I was like, why is why is Cube on Lynch Mob now? He's doing the solo yeah. stuff. I mean, he well, did, that was his crew. Yeah, yeah. Like, Today is a good day. I mean, one of the greatest all time tracks. But you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Even though the Lakers beat the Supersonics, well, <laughs> that that one hurt a little. <laughs> Don't let us do break up the crew. It was accurate though. I mean, what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, uh, Ryan, thanks for bringing in Bastiat, the unseen, and then you know also the subjective value. Like people are going to see things and value it in, in their own individual way. Uh, I uh, I do have an appreciation for for the story, and let's talk about why <clears throat> Cube left because it was it seemed shady to me how Jerry was handling the situation with the rest of the band members. I mean, Easy E he took his <clears throat> his seed money, and so I guess he was sort of the focal point from that perspective for Jerry, right? Because it was uh, Ruthless Records that was Easy es money. And so Easy e was sort of like the main, I don't know, the main owner. focal point yeah, owner of, yeah, of the group or the music or, or however. And so Jerry was focused on him, but the, he just left everyone else spinning in the wind. And it, w- it was frustrating to watch that because you're like, Cube's the lyricist and he, you know, is a vocalist for much of it. Like, wh- why are you not handling him? You know, why are you not taking care of him? And the writer. Dre's worth his weight in gold, baby. I mean, he yeah, went on Dre, the Dre was the music. Song. Dre was the music, and Ice Cube was the writer. You know, Ice Cube wrote most of the raps for Dr. Dre for Easy. He wrote that first hit Easy song that cruising down the street. You know, in my six four, that was Ice Cube. So yeah, Boys in the Hood. Yeah, Boys in Hood. He wrote all that. He wrote all the hits. Yeah, why you wouldn't want to lock those guys up and make them happy is beyond me. There must have been something going on that the movie doesn't delve into. I'm not exactly sure. It just, it just kind of paints Jerry and E kind of as these villain kind of characters a little bit, at least Jerry. And like E is kind of like this kind of going along with Jerry, whatever Jerry says sort of thing. But Eric, as in Eric E, was quite the savvy businessman. Like when he originally goes in to, to um, talk to Jerry for the very first time, he's like, nah, I'm cool. I'm doing it by myself. I don't need you. Whereas a lot of people were like, oh man, just trying to talk to anybody in the music business, you know, to try and get any kind of a momentum. But they were happy and believing in themselves and their own talent and their own abilities. You know, when they're young, they're, these are young guys. 
they're teenagers, very young in their 20s, early in their 20s. They've got to be fairly impressionable, got to be a little bit intimidated. But no, these guys are like, no, nah, man, we're going to do this. So I don't know how much of a dupe Eric was. Kind of In the movie, it's painted that Eric was the kind of good guy, kind of like trusting Jerry. And Jerry was like the maniacal villain guy. Not sure how much of both of those, you know, each of those is true. Uh, I tend to think that probably Eric kind of had some willful ignorance about some things. Cause like, wouldn't you want to like be like, no, Jerry, let's settle this up with Dre and everybody else. I mean, what, what are we doing here? Let's get cube, get a contract. Let's go, let's do this. I mean, why wouldn't you want to pay these guys? I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I think uh, Jerry actually sued the production of this movie, the whoever was pr- responsible for making this movie. And uh, he ended up dying, uh, I think in 2016. So shortly after the movie came out and I don't know if the estate is still pursuing the uh the suing the you know the court action or whatever but apparently he did not appreciate how he was depicted and part of his argument in the court was that it materially affected other clients opinion of him affecting his ability to get new work from this movie or yeah yeah this movie would affect his ability to get new clients and it's kind of a moot point now because oh, like a defamation kind of a thing defamation it was i think i think the court dismissed it even after he died because I remember, I remember Ice Cube being like, "Hell yeah," you know. Yeah, and, and another guy who was upset about it was depicted in the movie was Suge Knight. Which let's talk about that guy. <laughs> that guy, oh my god, I had no idea. I just knew of him peripherally, you know, in in the last twenty years, like being associated. He was in uh, the car with Tupac when he got shot, right? And yeah. he was associated with uh, NWA, and he and he was associated with Dre and and uh, some other other things. You know, you keep hearing about Suge Knight, Suge Knight, Suge Knight. He's the devil. Yeah, he's crazy in this movie. I mean, holy crap. And and apparently he was involved in altercations on the set and killed a guy. And now he's in prison yeah. for that. Yeah, he rolled over a guy's skull. Wow. With his Jeep. Like, there's video of it. Yeah, I, mean, I holy I, shit, man. <laughs> I remember reading um, Rolling Stone articles back in the mid to late 90s. Like, when I had my subscription, like, Tupac was here. And Puff Daddy... You know, these kind of guys were like big and Suge Knight would often get some kind of write up about him or he'd be mentioned in a story. And I remember one was told by Vanilla Ice that he had to give up like half of Ice Ice Baby or 90 percent. I forget what the percentage is of Ice Ice Baby, but he got threatened by Suge Knight. So when I saw him in the movie, I was like, well, yeah, the guy's an animal. So I don't know. I don't know what the truth is, but apparently he rubs a lot of people the wrong way and they make him out to be quite a villain. Yeah. It seems to be his MO, you know, to beat people into signing contracts. I guess that's, it was a little bit fuzzy in the movie here that they got, um, easy E to release Dre from his contract because of the beating. Like that's what I read. But then in the movie, it's sort of like, I think fumbles that up a little bit. It does because what actually happened is, um, if you look at the history, I don't know what kind of deal they signed, but, uh, like Dr. Dre still had to pay Easy E, even like even after the chronic and all that stuff, he had to pay Easy E. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Yeah. Well, that's why Easy said uh, Dre Day was made Easy's payday. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it was you know, so it wasn't like oh, they just beat him and you know, and, and that was it. No, it was it was like there were lawyers involved and there was like you know, contract dealings. You know, so it wasn't as simple as the movie made it. Like, like it shook. Like you know, obviously, you know, when you're dealing with contracts and the law. You can't get around that stuff, man. You know, you have to, you know, you have to deal with it. And that's why, you know, Suge Knight, there was a scene where he said, you know, let me have my people look at it. 
because he was real connected to uh, some pretty smart people at Interscope, like Jimmy Iovine and those guys. And they knew how to work those contracts and get people paid and, uh, you know, just kind of take care of people just so they won't, they won't be hassles down the line. So if that meant paying easy, you know, a percentage for the next couple of years and Hey, that's so be it. It's interesting. The, these contracts that musicians sign with record labels, there seems to be all through, I don't know, past couple of decades of my life, at least there's always some artist. And I remember like John Fogarty is just one that jumps out of my mind where they want out of some kind of contract that they signed early on and the record company won't release them. They're just like, no, because what are these contracts that these people are signing? I mean, in my mind, contracts almost always have, or any valid contract is going to have some kind of an escape clause. Like, okay, you can leave, but, but in this case, it's like, at least with these contracts, it's like, no, we're not letting you go. You can't go anywhere. Anything you make, we own. What is, what are the, usually, what is, what's the verbiage in these contracts? I don't know the verbiage, but usually these um, record companies put up some kind of advance. So, you know, maybe they might put up, you know, 250,000, you know, half a million in advances to record the albums. Back then it was like expensive to record an album. You had to rent studio time, musicians, production assistants, you know, shoot a video. Videos were costing like almost a million bucks. So you had, you know, these record companies would front that money and you got to pay it back. So, you know, if you shoot, you know, if you make a couple hit albums and once they subtract all the touring costs and the production costs and their profit and all that stuff, you still owe. So it's like, no, you're not leaving or you could be bought out. Like usually there is an out, but it costs money. And that, that price is usually arbitrary. You know, it's not one set price. They could, you know, you could buy me out for a million. You could buy them out for five million. And that's pretty much what they did with Easy E. You know, I mean, they, um, with Dr. Dre, I mean, he bought Sugar Knight and Interscope bought Dr. Dre out of Easy E and uh, Jeffrey Heller's contract. You know, but it cost quite a bit. They had to give up percentages of royalties they received going forward. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy because like they were so successful, it seemed like there was plenty of money to go around. So like back to the why are they screwing Dre and Cube and and even Yella and Rent? You know. It's like there's plenty of money, guys. Like what? What the heck? Yeah, who knows? I mean, but it's like there's no visibility. Visibility. There's no transparency. So you know, you're staying in hotels, you're traveling city to city, you're hiring all these, um, you know, these uh people to work the tour. You know, it's so you don't know what's being spent. Those guys surely don't know. Ice Cube doesn't know. You know, uh, Dr. Dre doesn't know what's being spent. Only Heller. He's the only one that knows. So when he, when at the end of the day, when he's like, hey, you know. You get a seventy uh, seventy five thousand dollar check. You know, maybe he's right. Like maybe that's just what you know what they're do. You know, but they're not making the uh, decisions on what to spend prior to that. You know, and he's not even coming to them and saying, "Hey, you can stay at this hotel, or you can stay at this hotel or this hotel, and we'll save this much. Here's the balance sheet. You know, here's what we we're looking to spend. You know, and giving them the options to you know allocate their money." intelligently he's just taking full control of it so i think that's what it comes down to you see it with all these artists i mean every single artist whatever genre they always end up having a problem with their contracts because it's pretty much they have no control no visibility you know and they just don't know and i can understand that being uncomfortable so it's not always necessarily where they're being screwed 
but they just don't know what they've signed into. You know, it's just ignorance. Right. And I don't know how many times I've heard like the managers screwing them out of the money though. You know, you always hear those stories about them being embezzled out of like millions of dollars. Well, I mean, if you look at it from an artist's perspective, they're like, okay, I'm on this one stage. I'm I'm the one on stage. I'm the one writing. I'm the one singing. You know, I'm the one the fans love. I'm the one all the media wants to talk to. Why are you getting this huge percentage of my money? That's how they are looking at it. Meanwhile, the manager's looking at it like, I'm the reason you're getting all that publicity and marketing and all that stuff. So, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of, I don't know, I think, I guess it comes down to trust, you know? Right. And it's like a, in a way, it's a symbiotic relationship, though the cards are sort of stacked in a way to where you don't know what the other players have. Right. So it becomes a bit adversarial, even though it is actually complimentary. Yeah. I can see how manager and a record company would provide value to an artist, at least in the beginning. And that's probably why they want those long-term benefits. But once, once an act is established, man, I would, yeah, GTFO of any kind of contract and then do it yourself. Yeah. I imagine there's a bunch of acts that don't pan out. So, you know, the record company and management loses big time. But then, oh, yeah. then they, you know, occasionally get a hit like this. And yeah, then, I mean, it sort of offsets, I guess, but to the right, op- It's kind of like the movie business where they put a whole lot of money into these movies and a whole bunch of them shit the bed and they lose money on it. But then they have a few hits and they make a ton of cash on those. Right. But then they sort of have to like cover their losses from prior. So like then the people right. involved in the one that did well don't see like, as, hey, maybe as much fuck? benefit. Yeah. Okay. It's they want to see the books. Yeah. Like. Are you paying off your other debts with my money? It is crazy to me that like new artists today still want to sign with like huge labels. I'm like, why, man? I mean, you have you have uh, you know Spotify, YouTube, Apple. You know, I mean, you could literally, I mean, to produce an album, you could literally go to Guitar Center, buy your own equipment. It's not really expensive. Produce an album and just put it out there and market it yourself and make 100% of the profit. You know, I just don't understand why, like, I mean, and, you know, look at somebody like, uh, they got a little Nas X that had that little country rap song that just like was huge past year or so. Yeah. You know, he didn't even intend for that to be like some huge hit. He just made like a fun song and put it on TikTok, you know, and it just blew up, you know? And I'm like, man, I mean, you couldn't do that, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You just couldn't, you had, there were these gatekeepers, you were a handful of record companies and a handful of distributors, maybe only three of them that you had to go through and you had to kind of pay the piper to get out there, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about that real quick. Like the, the music industry, especially back when what songs were played on the radio was really influenced by the record companies giving money to these radio stations to play certain songs. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, payola scandal, right? That's what they call that. Yeah, so I mean, they pretty much decided, hey, like, hey, we got this song, we think it's gonna be a hit. Here, you guys, you know, p- play it all around the country, and then you know, you're gonna get your money kickbacks and whatnots. So they basically decided, you know, they're the hit makers, really, right? I mean, they decided who was gonna be a star. But these days, yeah, you can do like Ryan said, you can do it all yourself. You don't need those people anymore, thanks to technology. The cost of producing an album is cheaper than ever, and yeah, I, it's. I don't know how many people still listen to radio. It's probably still a pretty big number while people are still commuting and whatnot, but it's not like it used to be since you had, like you said, Spotify and other things like that. Oh yeah, no way. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit, I want to shift this a bit and talk about how 
as evil as the drug war is, that without it, we wouldn't have had this level of quality of music. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like it's the adversary, uh, it's the adversity and, and the challenges that they faced that inspired them to write what they did and do it. Are you, did. are you making a Bill Burr point right now? <laughs> I did watch Bill Burr last night and uh, it was, well, it was, was really good. good. Oh, it's great. I mean, the Chappelle one's pretty good, especially in the current climate of how, you know, you can't say anything. Like, I don't know how, comedians do anything these days without getting shut down by the Twitterati. Uh, yeah. And so Chappelle's was a breath of fresh air, but it's, it's, it doesn't hold a candle to what he was doing 10, 15 years ago. Oh uh, no, no, you, you can't even compare it. Yeah. But the Bill Burr one, man, he, he's just full tilt. He's like, ah, fuck it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I love Burr, so I'm gonna check it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, but you know, it's, 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 but in the special, he makes the point, right? Daniel, go ahead and make it. Oh, uh, you, you have the floor, sir. No, no, no. He was having an argument with his wife and they were talking about um, the different thing, the different different races had invented. Right. And then he's like, well, if you didn't have all that years of slavery and oppression, you wouldn't have had the amazing blues music and blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> right. So you, were, so you can't you can't have it both ways. You can't have like incredible success, but then complain about your, you know, your your hard times. It's like when it's like when um, Eminem got rich, you know, he couldn't rap about being broke. Anymore. So right, right. right. And and I've heard this argument also with like the early '90s and grunge. You know that there was uh, the SNL crisis in the late '80s, and I guess there was a bit of a economic downturn related to that. And so music was there. There was a revival in like visceral, uh, impactful music for a while, and then it sort of went back into like pop land and got kind of crappy again. And it seems to go in these waves related to economic cycles in a way. Oh yeah, you know, it's like the good times breed. Uh, uh, weak men, weak men breed hard times. Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. You know that whole like vicious cycle, uh, right? Like when you have the trust fund kids, they don't usually get a whole lot accomplished, right? Yeah, that is interesting though. I mean, it's something about I guess music and art in general. You know, I guess humans we kind of identify with that with the struggle and people coming up through adversity. I mean, if you look at you know hip hop, it came up in the late seventies and the eighties during you know the you know stagflation of the seventies and the turmoil of the 80s and a war on drugs and a war on poverty and you know, it was just crazy and then you look at jazz and the blues coming up during you know post reconstruction and uh you know the uh, great depression and all that stuff uh, something about the struggle just makes some great art you know what i'm saying right and, and i don't know if like uh the snl crisis and all that like impacted Los Angeles. I think there were other things impacting Los Angeles, like the crack epidemic and the police brutality, and they're responding to that kind of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. And you know, and the drug war and all that. Well, that fucking Cube doesn't tank. Write, Cube, the, yeah, Cube doesn't write fuck the police if he doesn't get harassed by the cops all the time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 they have that fucking tank. Like, where's the warrant for that thing? You know, no warrant. Yeah, just like knock down the they house. Not, yeah. Just, uh, you could like pull up videos of that shit on YouTube. Like, they didn't care, man. They were put. They were driving a tank through your house and. I mean, I, you, you, if people forget. I mean, it was crazy in you know South Central LA. It was it was a war zone, you know. So and police, the police brought that same mentality as you know as you know the Ninth Infantry or whatever. You know, what I mean, they came in as occupiers and they tore shit up, man. I mean, it was it was that was a crazy time. I, I'm glad I was young, a young kid during those days. Yeah, and it's weird because like you look at those things and and then you kind of peel back like, okay, why did that happen? Okay, and what led to that? And what led to that? So you've got like the cops treating them like shit, tre treating the people that live there like shit. But the people who they're treating like shit are like doing, um, you know, 
slinging drugs and, and whatever gang related activity because opportunity has been uh, regulated away from them, right? Minimum wage laws, um, licensure, you know, things that prevent them from doing something otherwise productive that is legal, you know? And, and so you have all of these things that impact one another. And then the consequences uh, are part of that onion that you peel back. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I have this question that, that why are so many, um, black people living in that particular area like what led to that D does anyone know in like watts and compton and that sort of thing? yeah like in, they, in a concentrated way in that area was it like because you know like the 60s and 70s well, the downtown cores were kind of run down and so it was no, cheaper and... if you look well you had the uh you know they call it the great migration back in the early 20th century you had a lot of you know blacks from the south moving up north to detroit to new york to indiana and it was moving to the west coast too because, you know, they were, you know, there weren't, you know, any Jim Crow laws out there. They were hire, hiring black people to work uh, in factories uh, during World War II. You know, blacks were going out there to work on, uh, you know, aircrafts and stuff like that. So, you know, there were a lot of hiring opportunities. So you had kind of a like a black middle class get built out there fairly quickly. All those little houses you see in South Central, it's, you know, it's ghetto now. But back in like the 50s, those were like nice black middle class neighborhoods where people were doing great. You know, and it just kind of devolved over time. You know, once you, you know, once you introduce the Great Society and all the progressive you know, policies. <laughs> Say what? All those progressive policies. Yeah, I mean, it just tore it tore down. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah. Well, and not to get too conspiratorial, but there's a lot of great evidence that the CIA was bringing in cocaine into this country in the 80s. Yeah, at the very least, turning a blind eye. You know, at the very least, saying, "Yeah, do what you got to do," so we could. Get this money to fund the Contras, but we don't well, care where you put it. You know? Yeah, we covered I mean, we, that we, in American Made, right? Yeah, we did American Made. That hints at a lot of stuff. It doesn't get into all of it, but yeah, I mean, whether they facilitated it or actively did it, they certainly didn't, could have easily prevented it and didn't. Like right. you said, turn a blind eye. Now, um, so so World War II seems to be sort of a driver for bringing a lot of people to certain areas to work in military industrial complex type shit. Um, and then a generation later, you start seeing, I guess, the ghettification of certain areas. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to my mom a while back and she was saying when, you know, when she was young in the sixties, so many people were moving to California and she was like, wow. She was like, you know, they would say, you know, well, welfare checks are real good out there, you know, like housing and give you a big welfare check and this and that. You know, so it, they created an incentive out even back then, you know, even though California back then wasn't like, you know, super liberal. It was probably more liberal relatively relative to everywhere else in the United States. Okay. So you got to have, you know, those, you know, those early progressive policies of, you know, welfare, welfare and housing and all that stuff attracted a lot of, you know, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, parasites or whatever. Yeah, and then they don't have to work for it. They don't have to provide value for it. So they're not. If you, yeah, if you're moving somewhere because I can get a bigger welfare check, not because a job where in the people the people in the 40s, the 30s, 40s, and 50s were moving out there because of jobs, people in the 60s, 70s moving out there because, hey, I can get a big welfare check. Obviously, that's a different type of person you're pulling in, you know? Right, right. And then, and then what are they going to do? Like, they're not doing a job, so they've got all this free time. Their basic needs are met, or you know, to a to a degree. And uh, I heard the the Dem debates last night. That Yang guy wants uh, to give everyone money. It sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea. Thousand bucks. 
Yeah. So so then then you got uh, the Watts riots, right? That's uh, sixty eight. Um, and was that yeah. related to who died in sixty eight? Uh, Bobby Kennedy. Um, no, that was Martin Luther King. Okay, so they, both of them that year, right? Yep. And and was the Watts riot related to that, or because there were also riots in uh, Chicago, right, for the Democratic National Convention? Yeah, there were riots everywhere, man. It was it was crazy. But I mean, nothing like the Watts riots. After King got killed, there was the Detroit riots. There were the Watts riots. There were Baltimore riots. You know, New Orleans, everywhere. Okay, all right, and then and then after the Rodney King one, like we were talking about earlier, uh, that was what ninety one, ninety two, ninety two, late ninety one or early ninety two, something like that. All right, and then and then we we get the uh, now is the moment to talk about the Korean shopkeepers. Yeah, yeah, the rooftop sniper guys. Yeah, so Robert, uh, lead us off, and then we'll go to Ryan, and then we're gonna have to start winding this down pretty soon. But I want to get this topic in here. Wow, we haven't even scratch the surface of all the things to talk about that I have in my notes, but okay. Let's keep going. Just keep going. Man. Well, we'll just have a big old Kathleen Turner overdrive or something. We'll do all kinds of stuff. But anyway, I, I, I wanted to talk about the Korean snipers just a little bit. They're not snipers, but you know, they're, they're the shopkeepers that are going to defend them, their property with weapons. And I mean, they weren't, a, they were what the only ones that did it as far as I understand. And, and their shops survive for the most part, as far as I understand it. Um, it's a, there's a briefly shown in the film, but I'm glad they put it in. I, I didn't even re- notice it in the film. Honestly, I had to have Daniel and Ryan tell me it was in there, but I wanted to discuss it just because it, they, I loved it because, you know, they weren't calling the cops. They're just like, no, get some guns, get on top of the roof. And we're going to, you know, be a deterrent. We're going to be a deterrent. We don't necessarily have to shoot anybody, but we can, you know, we can fire some warning shots or whatever, but we got to let it know, let people know we're not going to fuck around and we're going to protect our shit. And I, I don't, they don't get any shit for it. And rightfully so. Although the left in this country sure seems to think that guns don't prevent crime. Guns are just evil and bad and we need to take them all away. But you know, they care, they ignore this instance of it. Yeah. Or the 3 million defensive uses of a handgun uh, that the CDC estimates happens every year. Yeah. Not, not. And then all the, um, all the uh, you know reduced crime that they benefit from from their friends or their neighbors having a gun or even potentially having a gun. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's the potential. You know, the concealed carry is is really the thing because then a potential perpetrator doesn't know who's armed and who isn't. Exactly. But in this case, they knew those Korean shop owners were armed and they weren't gonna go fuck with them because they have a chance to get in shot. But in the other, you know, the open season areas, they got all messed up. Like in, the, like in a gun-free zone. It's um, it's a lesson that some people still have to learn. Yeah, now these riots, I mean, there were people legitimately pissed off, and, and rightfully so. But then oh, yeah. there were other people, like this mob mentality kind of happens, right? Or this, um, what do they call that? When you, you remember seeing the concert where there's this guy dancing all by himself, and then one or two other people join him, and then there's this point where there's enough people doing it to when then just a flood of people do it. So it's like there's the early adopter who looks like a crazy weirdo and then two or three people join him that like validates that this is a thing that can be done. And so it's not so weird anymore. And then like the hundredth monkey does it. And then the whole crowd joins in and does yeah, it that, very rapidly. Right. It's yeah. Like that this, herd mentality. Yeah. This yeah, tipping point sure. thing. And so I wonder how much of that affects like in a riot because there is looting, but I don't think that's why uh, that wasn't the the reason, you know, like, there were people who took advantage of a situation. 
because there were riots. You know what I mean? Like I viewed the looting as separate from the riot from the riot. Like the riot was because of legitimate anger of an injustice. And then the looting was, oh, we're going to take advantage of the situation. And that's, sure. that's why the Korean yeah. shop owners were like, all right, well, we're we don't want to be taken advantage of in that way. Well, can we talk about the outrageousness of the verdict? This is a government deciding. <laughs> we've we found we've done nothing wrong. The government didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's like our, our, our violent enforcers are, we're following, like, as long as they follow their own horrific, immoral training, whatever their guidebook says they are, can and cannot do, or what they're allowed to do, as long as they do that, then whatever they do is fine. And the court always finds them innocent. Even if they just pull out a gun and murder somebody to shoot them in the face. Like, well, I felt threatened for my life. But we had this one on video. We had this one on video. And the thing that people like apologists use to defend the cops in that situation, I remember back in the day, my dad said this and he was like, well, he's still moving and they're telling him not to move. And it's like, you know, he's like trying to cover himself and he's like writhing around in agony as they're beating him repeatedly. It's like, yeah, he's no, a- no threat to anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And this is one of those situations where you almost wonder if they intentionally did that to spark something off, you know, because if, 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 if you were rational, you would say, okay, they got us on this one. There's video. It's blatant. We better nail these guys and all the ones we don't have video on. And there's like shaky evidence or it's not like in the media. eye. you know, people aren't like outraged by it. Right. Have some fall guys. Yeah. Let those guys go or whatever, you know, like we'll, we'll do the status quo, the thin blue line or the, whatever the fuck we call it. The, you know, the bros before hose thing. Yeah, it's like the what the it's like the gang mentality where they like circle the wagons and like protect all the the blue people. Right, right. But the ones that you know, it's just blatant. All right, sorry, you got caught. We got to come down on you. And then the riot doesn't happen, right? Right. Uh, it makes sense to me. I, I I've never heard of a conspiratorial take on the Rodney King beating. Yeah. Is there is there is there some conspiracy about like who was taking the video of it? I don't I don't remember any of this. I don't know who did take the video. I have no idea. Yeah, it's uh, I'm fuzzy on all of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's a long time ago. I'm just saying, like, if if you have a, a system in place that is going to check itself, then when it's caught blatantly red-handed with eyeballs on it, you know, notoriety, like it's an outrage. People, people like the population knows about it. They see it. They watch it. Those are the times you actually have to pretend that it's not justice. Only for the plebs. Man, the police, they don't want, even want to set that pres- precedent. You know, it's they have to create that view that they are always in the right, you know, and it's, it's it's so frustrating, but it makes so much sense. And I remember someone, I think it was a teacher, maybe a coach back during that time saying something like, you know, how do you expect them to investigate themselves? I remember saying that I was just even back then I was just a little kid and I was like, that makes sense. Like, why? Why would you know? Why would they find themselves guilty? You know, it's, it's, it's they're all the government, the court, you know, the police, everybody. It's all the same team. Yeah, it's like playing basketball, you know? and it's like call your own fouls. We're like, I got fouled. And so I mean, I mean, why would they? You know, they don't. They don't have to. Those guys are free. We could say, hey, why didn't they could have done this? They could have avoided, avoid, you know, avoided a riot and stuff like that. But those guys are free. They're not in jail. And, you know, there were no, well, there was some changes. If you look up Daryl Gates, he was the police commissioner in LA that whole era. He was a super ruthless, crooked, corrupt guy. And uh, I think he got, you know, booted out after that. But 
there weren't any changes, like real structural changes. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, <laughs> Were they? I mean, they and it makes you, my, my thing always wondered, like, since they caught that on camera, what, what happened before cameras existed? Like, what? imagine what was being done before people had cameras to catch stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, because before that, it was literally their word against yours. So it was the police saying, if those cameras weren't there, the police would have said, Rodney King charged us with a weapon or something, and we had to take you know action to protect ourselves. And everyone would have believed him. Everyone, because Rodney King, he wasn't like an angel. He was, you know, he was a criminal. He had like a, you know uh, a record, and I think he was a drug addict or something like that. So yeah. I mean, nobody would have nobody would have assumed different, you know. But the camera made people say like, oh, okay, this is a little different. So it just gave a kind of a glimpse into what a lot of people were dealing with at that time without the cameras being viewed, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that just reminded me. I, I think I heard somebody long ago say, "Oh, yeah, he was high on PCP, and it's uh, you know it makes you feel like extra strong or whatever, and so he was not as affected by them subduing him or whatever." But it's just blatant in the video. I mean, it sounds like just an excuse um, <laughs> well, to me. Yeah, and what I always want to know is what what was he doing in the first place? Like, what? Why were they even there talking to him? I mean, was he actually hurting somebody? Was he attacking somebody? Was he? being incredibly, you know, reckless or something like that. Like how many times? Is it just a traffic stop, right? Well, how many times do you see, you know, the charge, the only charge being, well, resisting arrest. Yeah. The only charge, like no other reason. Like when uh, Dre gets arrested, he's just standing there and he's just not obeying (laughs) the cop's bullshit authority to leave. And he's just like, what? And so then he just gets arrested for nothing. Oh man, this this is what kills me about like black you know, black leftists that tote the whole uh, gun, you know, anti-gun line. I'm like, what do you think? If gun confiscation really goes down, how do you think that would look? What do you think that would look like? I mean, do you think they're going to roll into Wyoming and start taking people's guns first? No, they're going to go to Baltimore. They're going to go to New Orleans, Chicago. Those going to be those are going to be the first people that get the effects of that police interaction, you know, stop and frisk or, you know, no knock raids and stuff like that, because those are the highest crime areas. Those are where people are actually dying. You know, so if you're a left, a black leftist, you know, promoting this anti-gun, gun confiscation policy, you're basically saying we want more interaction between blacks and police. Right. Violent interaction with the possibility of one being armed. How do you think that's going to play out? You know? <laughs> Yeah, and, and those those are the areas that are already like being affected by increased you know police interactions anyway. And, exactly. And I would also say that those are the areas that, that have gun control or very strict gun uh, laws in place, and the majority of the guns that are used in any criminal activity are technically illegal guns as is. Yeah, yeah. And I've I brought that question up to some black you know liberal friends I know, and they have no answer. They're like, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I really have no answer to that because you know it, you know that's not going to end well for you. You know, it's not going to end well. Guns bad. Beep boop. It's unbelievable. I, I try, you know, I try to. I'm a type of person that I always try to look look at things through someone else's eyes. Or, you know, guess it's empathetic or whatever. And I try to look through their eyes and say, how can I? And I just don't see it. Just from a just from a logical angle, I just don't see it. Like. Why would you want the government to take away that right? You know, I mean, I saw, I don't know. I think there was Michael Malice that retweeted it. It was like, I, I don't know who said it, but it was like, 
you know, America makes up like only 5% of the Earth's population, but we have like almost 50% of the guns. And Michael Malice was like, that's a pretty good promotion for, you know, gun rights or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, that's true. I'm like, that's pretty awesome. Like, I feel that made me feel a little better that this country is that well armed. You know, I mean, if you're an invade, if you're an, I'm not that I'd sit around fearing some invasion from another country, but if you did fear that, you know, being a well armed populace is a pretty good thing, you know? Yeah, it's kind of the history of the country. If you're yeah. you know, you're going to get nationalistic about it, that's yeah. the whole point. So, what else we got? We got very little time. Any big pressing stuff we want to get to? Because I've got a few things, but um, I don't know where you want to do with this. Oh man! So I just want to throw one thing out there, and I don't want it's going to sound like I'm a cop apologist, which is insane for me. But like I was talking about the peeling the onion back, you know, you see the the consequences and downstream effects of of the policies in place and, and certain things that happen. I can see why the police were treating them this way because of how they presented themselves. And it's uh you guys are familiar with Walter Williams. He has a brief YouTube video uh from a talk where he's talking about, all right, you see a tiger walking down the street. Are you gonna approach that tiger and say, hey, are you a nice tiger or a bad tiger? Or are you gonna say, hey, that's a fucking tiger. I'm not gonna get any closer to that. Right. So you're so you're kind of giving them a pass for when they assault NWA at the outside the record studio or the recording studio where No, I'm just saying they, I understand why they would think that they're criminals or up to no good and treat them in the way that they did. But they said they essentially had like a stop and frisk policy, right? They see some guys that look like hoods and they're gonna pull over and they're gonna shake them up and see what drugs or guns fall out of them. Or plant them on them. <laughs> Or plant them on them. You know, they're the LAPD. What are they going to do? Right. And, and and I'm not trying to excuse them at all. I'm just saying that that in the position they're in, it makes sense. But everything they do is, as as Robert Hicks it says, you know, they, they're they're enforcing immoral laws. They, they sign up for this job and, and agree to apply all of the laws, even the immoral ones. Therefore, there are no good cops, right? So <clears throat> I'm not saying, I'm just trying to make the point that, that stereotyping and is a useful shortcut mechanism to understanding unfamiliar situations. Well, sure. Before you know any better. Device, and it's an energy saving device. I would, I, I would agree with you that if you were on the side of the cops and you say, well, that was the one time it didn't work out when they actually were harassing these musicians, but the other 99 times they're actually just going to be harassing drug dealers and whatever. So yeah, from a numbers point of view, it makes sense from the cops. But what they're doing is horrifically immoral. Absolutely. They're, they're profiling and not to say that profiling is necessarily wrong in, if you're not aggressing against anybody, but in the, in the way they were doing it, like I'm going to see somebody that looks a certain way and I'm going to go and attack that person. You're, you're the aggressor. Right. Right. And, and someone needs to understand like our whole philosophy to kind of get the nuance of what I'm trying to say, I guess, because <laughs> from what I've said, it sounds awful. But uh, if you go back and listen to some of our previous shows, I think you'll get the gist that we don't believe in any <laughs> intervening with peaceful people. Right. I mean, you're kind of making it sound like they're asking for it. Like, what was she wearing? Right, right. The victim <laughs> blaming thing. No, I'm just saying I can understand, like, if I, if I were a cop and I was in that position, I could see why I would feel the way that way, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, let's let's just, okay, Ancapistan exists, you know, say we have Ancapistan and, you know, you're assigned to keep Ancapistan, you know, this little neighborhood, this covenant community or whatever you think it is, you're tasked to keep it safe, you know? So 
I mean, obviously, as a security professional, you're going to profile. You will profile. You're going to, you know, you're going to make a decision on, you know, an analysis on what has been uh, a danger to that neighborhood in the past. And then you're going to say, okay, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that. You know, that's just natural. You know, that's natural for humans, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, you're, you're basically just describing what happened with George Zimmerman. Yeah. Literally with George Zimmerman, even though I, I've kind of, I, I took a different take than most libertarians. I mean, most libertarians that I knew were like, well, you know, it made sense, but I, I was a little, I was a little different on the whole Trayvon Martin thing. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's that, you know, you, you will have to profile at some point and okay. If you draft, if, most of the people that are doing the drug, doing the drug dealing, or if we're in Afghanistan, let's just say, just doing, you know, stealing and murdering, and they dress a certain way and they look a certain way, you're kind of going to keep an eye out for that, you know. But there's keeping an eye out, and then there's, you know, just literally harassing and, you know, and aggressing, you know, literally aggressing towards someone without, you know, collecting the facts. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And that, yeah, and that's what you had with you know with the LAPD and a lot of police. Yeah, and yeah, and, certainly how presented in the film. I mean, they are uh, initiating the the aggression. Um, I think beyond the what what I'm trying to say, like they might be suspicious. That that's what I'm saying. But they they certainly go over the line in in the movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's down to the fact that they are the they're the violent thugs that always have to be in control of the situation. They always have to be in charge. They have to keep this veneer of this authority and yeah I, I would have no problem with them if they were to profile and then drive up and just start talking to them have a conversation but they go up and actually physically assault them and they're insulting them the whole time and calling them boy and you know just being complete assholes right <laughs> with, impunity, assholes with impunity the because they can get away with it right that's because it's a monopoly a monopoly. A monopoly, a monopoly service provider yep you gotta pay yeah. for it whether you like it or not yeah why do they care it's not like they have to compete against any other service exactly <clears throat> all right well hey i i hate to uh cut this short i know we have like plenty more to talk about but it's time for that final summary and review uh robert if you would like to lead us off sure so i really enjoy this movie but uh, i'm a kind of a homer for this movie uh like i said i'm a fan of the music i'm a fan of these artists i'm a fan of the i'm a fan of the um you know the the spirit of these guys, especially with fuck the police. I mean, how can you not love these guys? They got the balls to write that song and sing it in Detroit when the cops were staring right in their face saying they're not allowed to sing it. It was great. Um, I thought that the actors were excellent. Uh, the guy that played Easy E and Ice Cube were fantastic. Um, I mean, they're all solid, but those are the two like main ones that stood out to me. The guy that played Dre was pretty good, um, but I, I thought that the guy that played Easy E was was just a really impressive um it, like daniel was saying it's a biopic it's you know it, it compresses a lot into a little bit of space even though it's about a three-hour movie and it maybe it would benefit from a little bit more singular cohesive storyline but man i was just such a in such enjoyment mode learning all about these artists the whole time in their life and why things happened the way they did and why the the music came out and why they were beefing with each other and you know, that was just all really interesting to me. So it's hard for me to give, you know, a really number that, you know, it's like, eh, I'm just, I'm such a fan. So I, I have to give this like a, a high, like 8.5. I know um, our friend, The Negotiator, this is his favorite movie of all time. I wonder what he would give it. 
Um, this isn't my favorite movie of all time, but it's it's really good. And I would highly recommend it. If you're a fan of the music, I'm sure you've already seen it. But if you haven't and you, you're a fan of just like really talented rappers, like I think Snoop Dogg is one of the greatest rappers of all time. Um, I just, I love the way he sounds. And I think Dre is one of the greatest producers of all time. So for me, as a, like a, a music geek, not that I'm the biggest music geek, but from this period in time, this is when I was the geekiest about music. Um, this was great for me. So, Daniel. All right. Very good. Well, I'm going to echo a lot of your sentiments. Uh, I was a fan of their music, but I hadn't seen this movie until this week. Um, and like I said in the open, I, I for some reason thought this was more recent than four years ago. So that just shows how time flies when you have kids. And uh, all of a sudden, it's like five years later or whatever. Uh, but I found that this was a movie that was built for fans. Like you sort of had to have a little bit of foreknowledge of what was going on, like who these guys were. And it filled in a lot of that. And, and that makes it interesting and, and fun to watch, you know, the biographical aspect of it and seeing some of the reasons why they did certain things or wrote certain songs or why the beef got started. That was really interesting to see. And I, I had no idea that, uh, cube didn't really diss them until they dissed him. And then, then no Vaseline was like the fucking atomic payback to them. And I wouldn't even talk about uh, that interview where uh, they talk about um, Jerry Heller and Cube being potentially anti-Semitic um, when he was talking about an individual person who was screwing him and not a whole class of people or group of people. So it's just bizarre. Uh, but at the end of the day, I felt like it did need some more of a focal point. Like there was a lot of events that happened. They could have found one or two or three big things to make kind of like the focal point of the movie that would have satisfied this critic a little bit more. Uh, and then there was a little bit of sloppy editing, I think like the getting out of Dre's contract. Um, like there was the beating with Suge Knight and then there was uh, the Interscope guy coming in and it was a little bit messy trying to understand that. And then when easy goes and talks to Jerry, they actually repeat a line of text verbatim uh, in that scene. Like it's like, you're doing a little deja vu take and something like that in a movie just seems so weird to me that they would leave that in, especially once they know about it. And it's like in a digital format, wouldn't they just be like, oh, yeah, let's take out that extra exact repeat of what he just said again. Uh, but anyway, it, it's still fun. And and I don't I can't imagine how the negotiator would consider this his favorite movie of all time. Well, I'll have to ask him, like, why? Uh, I mean, it's not a terrible movie. It's a good movie and it's a movie for fans and I enjoyed myself watching it, uh, but I'm going to go with a 7.5. So it's not like, you know, amazing, but, uh, you know, pretty good. And that's that's my opinion on it. So, uh, Ryan, let's get your final summary interview rating out of 10. Now you can go decimal point deep or uh, do what you like. Yeah, I thought the movie was terrific. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a kind of a love letter to uh, fans of music of the 90s, late 80s, 90s, uh, people that grew up just... It was such, you know, I guess every era says, every uh, every person says, hey, my era, when they were coming up as youngsters, they say their era was the greatest. But I really think, like, those 90s, man, it was just so diverse. Even hip-hop as a genre was so diverse. You had, you know, New York hip-hop, you had West Coast, you had Down South, you had Midwest, you know, you had Bone Thugs, Snoop Dogg, Tupac, N.W.A., Wu Tang, Nas, Jay Z, Biggie, Tribe Called Quest—just such a different, you know, outcast. Just completely different talents and languages. 
And it was, you know, music sounds. It was just so different. Like, if you listen to hip-hop today, it's it's terrible. I can't even listen to it. It's all the same. It all sounds the same. It's all the same producers. It's just, it's really crap. So, I mean, I just, it's nice that we're getting to the point where we're seeing, we're seeing biopics of that time we came up in, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, which is really crucial. You know, I mean, hip-hop is a, you know, as far as like a genre, it's pretty young. You know, it started in the 70s, you know, grew into the 80s, and then it kind of turned into something else. It started out as kind of a dance party music, then it moved more into a, uh, they call it the CNN of the ghetto. You know, they, you know, it was just, you know, stories about what was going on in, you know, really downtrodden neighborhoods in America. You know, and, and then that kind of commercialized and, so it's kind of nice to just see, you know, that starting point. I think a lot of youngsters today that saw the movie, I, th- I guess it was, I just got a lot of enjoyment out of them seeing where a lot of this stuff comes from, you know, because you got to remember, I mean, even early hip hop, there was no cursing in rap. I remember when I was like, you know, seven, eight, about eight or nine years old and my cousin coming to the house with the NWA tape. And he's like, man, they have a song called, and he whispered it to me. We're like in the middle of the street, and he whispers to me, fuck the police. And I'm like, what? There's a song that says that? And he was like, yeah, we'd go listen to it. And it was just like our own little secret. You know, it was just so amazing just to hear that kind of stuff. And it's so funny when you look at today versus back then, because back then, you know, the people that hated that stuff were kind of the right wing, you know, real conservative religious types you know, that were kind of shut down speech and trying to put, you know, uh, parental advisory stickers on uh, albums and trying to shut down NWA. But now, you know, in 2019, that attitude comes from more from the left, you know, so it's kind of funny how, you know, you juxtapose juxtapose that to today, you know, but overall the movie, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music. I love the live performances, especially uh, Ice Cube, the gut, you know, the, uh, that was Ice Cube's son. Obviously, you know, who played Ice Cube, and I thought he just uh, he just embodied his dad. I forgot that was someone else. I started thinking that was Ice Cube as I watched it, you know. And um, I loved Easy. I actually know, know that guy, the guy that played Easy. He's from New Orleans, uh, and I mean, I don't know him like personally, like hang out, but we kind of ran around the same neighborhood or whatever. And I saw him from time to time, and that was his first like big movie role. I thought he just did excellent. Uh, and, you know, I, I, uh, the daddy got played Dr. Dre. I just love that they just brought out that whole era and showed how, you know, there was no set in stone template on how to do the art they were trying to create. They were literally creating as they went along and brought along their experiences, what they knew, and they put that on record. They had no idea if it'll be good or if people would like it or not. They just put it out there and, you know, it became like, a you know, a huge phenomenon. So I like that. I, so I give the movie like an eight. It's not a 10 because I think the latter third of the movie kind of gets convoluted, kind of rushed and jam-packed. Uh, so I can't give it a 10. But I think like especially like the first half of them coming together and the initial performances and all that stuff. I thought that was just, you know, that was the best part of the movie. So I give it a good solid eight. All right. Well, that that is Eight is great. So thank you for that, Ryan. And thank you for joining us for this episode. It's always a pleasure to have you on. And we'd love to have you back on again in the future. And speaking of the future, we just did Back to the Future last week. And we talked a little bit about the drug war. We talked a little bit about the drug war this week. And we're going to talk about it a little bit next week. We'll do the most recent and potentially last Clint Eastwood film called The Mule. 
And we're going to have a guest, Rocky Ferenberg, who had joined us um, back last Christmas time, I think, for Smallfoot. So that will be the episode next week, Clint Eastwood's The Mule, which is available on HBO right now. So if any of you guys have HBO or streaming, you'll be able to watch it before we um, record that one next week. So uh, any final words from you, Robert, and then uh, to Ryan, and then we'll say good night from last night on the uh, Last Nighters here, episode 89 of the show. I mean, we're doing a lot of like nostalgia lately. It's been a lot of fun for me. I mean, as a old man now, it, it's, it is fun to go back and look at your formative years. And it's weird looking at it like, you know, like like movies are being made about it. Like, like look at these great guys doing this great stuff back then. And I thought it was great at the time, but I didn't. And it was a big phenomenon. But I guess it just didn't dawn on me that these guys are being held in the same kind of pantheon. It's like all other music greats, which I think they should be. But it's it's nice to see because it's certainly at the time, a lot like in the movie shows, a lot of the prevailing opinion was, you know, this is just crap. This is just ghetto trash music. These guys are just violent thugs that are, you know, talking over a beat. This is not good stuff. But certainly, I think time is told and these guys are recognized as the artists that they were. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun talking about it. It's been fun talking to you, Ryan. Thank you again for coming on. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yes. All right. Well, that's going to do it for uh, tonight. Uh, So we'll say goodnight from last night and join us next week for The Mule. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.